0: Father, what we need most is to simply hear from you. May your word come and give us what we do not have, remind us of what we have forgotten. Might it come and cut through all of the noise and busyness of our personal lives, of our vocational lives, of our relational and social lives, of our hobbies, of our passions, and all of the data swirling around, all of the points and counterpoints and and tweets and blog posts and books and podcasts and movies and conversations. Might it come with clarity and as this text has, so much comfort for any that will hear it. What every single person needs most in this room, whether they have walked with you for 23 years, whether they have been wandering away And wonder if they can come back, whether they don't even know how they showed up here this morning. What every single person needs most is that we would leave this time more impressed with what Jesus has done, all that he has accomplished, more convinced and full of hope because of what he promises to do. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lift Jesus high, that we might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 15, I'm just going to read from verse 11 through the end of the chapter. We might reference the earlier verses, though, as well. This is God's holy, flawless word. And he, meaning Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And divided his property between them. and is found. Feel free to grab a seat. I'll just give you fair warning or heads up, or maybe this is helpful. This sermon feels like part four of really what's been a month-long sermon. So if you would permit me four hours straight, we would have done it in one go, but I don't think any of us could have made that. And so to, to get to where we're going, to get into the new territory, we need to go back and see a bit where we've been, starting with an insight I learned from Kent Hughes from his commentary on this chapter. He begins his chapter on Luke 15 with what he says is his favorite description of God's love. This comes from A.W. Tozer from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. It's his favorite description of God's love. But Ken Hughes, he goes on and he says there's, there's something... Um, difficult or challenging about a definition or description like that. As wonderful as it is, there's a problem that, it, that abstract descriptions like that, they're hard to feel. His love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. It is gloriously so. But what's that mean? On the ground level, what's that feel like? To answer that, Jesus gave us this story, a loving father, And a wayward son. Jesus put this incomprehensibly vast, shoreless sea of God's love into something that we all can access because it's something that touches each of our lives, the relationships that we have with others, particularly a relationship that is one of, if not the most intimate, that of a parent and a child. Now, I said this a few weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. As many parents know, and as those with younger children will come to know, or know is that a child can create a type of joy that is indescribable and a type of pain that is often unbearable, an ache, a sorrow, a wound. The few others can, and obviously it works in the other direction as well from parent to child. The parent-child relationship is one of the most important, one of the most intimate you share everything, like my father-in-law when he shared his used underwear with me when I was in college because I couldn't afford underwear. <laughs> true story. It's really clean though. Um, but I mean, it's just like you share everything. Something that often also rings true is that the older the child gets, the more they can hurt you. The more rebellion stings. A three year old shouting, I hate you, is different than when a 37 year old says it. The reason I highlight that again is what we have in this parable is an adult son, old enough to leave, who is in effect looking at his father. When he says, Give me my share of the inheritance, he's saying, Give me what's coming to me when you no longer are around. I'd rather have you out of my life and have the things that, that I'm getting than have you. That had to be brutal. That had to be the, the, the hard-heartedness, the, the look in the eye. The son looks at his father. I mean, that had to create a fracture that was so deep. And that's the stage that Jesus uses to highlight the love of God. Now, what we have in this story, with a younger son at least, is a son that has wandered so far, he's dishonored so much. And he ends up in uh, uh, feeding pigs. And, and as a young Jewish boy feeding pigs, I mean, this would have been below rock bottom. This would have been the worst. This is, this, is, this is a place of absolute desperation. Now in a land after he's squandered, he came from a wealthy home and now he's impoverished and he has nothing to eat. And then this little line, and no one gave him anything. He's at the end of his, ro- he has no other options. And then he comes to himself. He comes to his senses and says, wait a second. How many servants in my father's house, they have more than enough to eat. I, what I'll do is I'm going to go back. And then he, he goes into this, this well-rehearsed speech. And it's all true. I have sinned against you and, and, and before God in heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then this little phrase that I would suggest to you is, is, is misguided. He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. And what's behind that is the son was saying, there's no way I can actually come back to my father as a son, but maybe I can hope to come back now as an employee. Maybe I can come back as a servant. Maybe I can labor and work and, and pay off the debt because I, there's no way that he could ever bring me back as a son after everything that I've done, but at least I'd be able to eat. But the father, he'll have none of it. I mean, verse twenty of this text is just this incredible picture. These five verbs of the Father as He sees His Son out on the horizon, and and how did He see Him? Because every day you got to imagine He's looking, He's longing. Is that my Son? Has my Son finally returned? Is that form, that silhouette that I see, is is that Him? I've been waiting, I've been longing, and He sees Him. And the first thing He does is He feels compassion. The word means that that His that He felt it in His gut. He leapt with, with ache and, and longing. And so he runs to him. He sprints. and all the historical background, we've done this. But to remind you, at this time, a, a wealthy uh, a landowner like this does not run. And to run, he would take his tunic and he would pull it up between his legs and he tuck it into his belt because he said, I don't want anything to slow me down from holding my son. And then he embraces him. The, the word there is he falls upon his neck. He just throws all of his weight. He begins to kiss him. And you have this, this, these verbs in verse 20 there. It's this, this ever escalating picture of the father longs for the son. And then he goes, bring the best robe, which would have been his own robe. that he would have worn only at special occasions. He said, put it on my son. He would have been covered in filth. The son was, was famished. He was, he was broken. He was poor. He's feeding pigs. He would have stunk. Puts the robe on him. Kill the fattened calf, it would have been the best meal. Let's throw the best party we possibly can, and the whole village would have been invited. The Father's love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea that takes on a form that you can touch in the embrace of a father. There is just such a ready willingness in God to forgive all of us. There is no resistance in God to pour out his grace upon people who would say they need it. I love this quote from Haddon Robinson. With him, the calf is always the fattened calf, the robe is always the best robe. The joy is unspeakable and the peace passes understanding. There is no grudging in God's goodness. He does not measure his goodness by drops like a druggist filling a prescription, it comes to us in floods. If only we recognized the lavish abundance of his gifts, what a difference it would make in our lives. Now, if you are a Christian in this room, personalize this story. Put yourself into this story. Don't miss the opportunity to retell and remember when you, like every Christian, and the journey of how you become a Christian, for some it's this, this moment where where the the grand holiness and grandeur of God was displayed in in your sinfulness, your rebellion, your running, your apathy towards him came to light. And the grace of Christ to live the way you were meant to and took the death that you deserved, it became real. And you said, oh, I can't believe a desperate sinner like me would be forgiven by a grand God. Put yourself into the story. Think of those things that that have, have, have weighed you down, that you bring into this room feeling so much shame for and perhaps even appropriate guilt for. When you got to the door, if the father was over here and as he saw you come up the stairs and he made out your form, here's what he felt, compassion love, longing. Oh, he knows it all. He knows all the things that we convince ourselves aren't really true. (laughs) And he runs and he falls upon the neck and he kisses and he celebrates. This is my son or this is my daughter. Let us celebrate. See the Father swallowing you up in grace. I shared a few weeks ago when I sing a song that we'll sing today, one of my favorite songs that we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I always do the same thing. I put this hand in this pocket, I think it's always this hand in this pocket, and I put this hand up like this, kind of bend my elbow and try to flex my bicep in case anyone's looking, Um, sort of. Um, And as I sing it, I just, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And it's like I'm, I'm trying to grasp out and feel it. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son. And then I take my hand and I always, on this next line, I always put it here to make this wretch. His treasure. And I always drop my hand before I get to the treasure. And I told you that in studying this text, it it, it changed something for me. Because the wretch part is, is, is true in terms of my behavior, but not my identity. It is true of your behavior, but not your identity if you are in Christ. Because here's what it is. You're now treasure. This text, he says, this, my son. Not my hired hand. This, my son. Not this rebel. This, my daughter. Not my disappointment. There's this flip that happens how deep the Father's love for us that He would make wandering rebels treasure. And look at this text, imagine seeing the embrace, the kisses, the best robe, the best food, the best party, the son filthy, covered in shame, and the best words, my son, or my daughter. We know that the son wasn't sure how he would be received when he brought his stuff into life. We just didn't know. We didn't know when he came back. That's why he has the line, treat me as one of your hired servants. Um, how many of us wonder that? Really, really wonder it. Deep down, really wonder it. If, we, if it comes out, if, if whatever's exposed, how will we be received? How, how, how will God treat us? I would suggest you the the universal longing of every prodigal heart. Ernest Hemingway, in his short story, The Capital of the World, takes place in in Spain, in Madrid, and it's between a father and a son named Paco. And the story revolves around the relationship, and Paco wants to become a matador, and, and he has a fallout with his father, and so he wants to escape his father's control, and he runs away to... Madrid, but his father is desperate to find his son. And so he, he follows into Madrid and he begins to search and to look, at, look for him. He wants to reconcile with his son. And so he, he puts an ad in the local newspaper with a simple phrase. He says this, dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Now, one of the things that's helpful to know is that Paco was a very popular Spanish name at this time. And so Hemingway goes on, and the next day when the father shows up, at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 men, all named Paco, all there seeking forgiveness. Isn't that what we all want? Like each and every one of us? And the father offers them. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make, no doubt, wretch, any wretch, his treasure. All right, that's the recap. Where are we going? Let me ask you a monster of a question. What would have happened if the son met his big brother first instead of the father? how would this story for the young son, this wandering son, have changed? If when he came back after hitting rock bottom, after he came back after realizing all these, and he, he, he comes to himself, he says, I can go back maybe not as a son, but at least as a servant. Maybe I can eat. Maybe I can have a place to sleep again. And the first person that saw him was his big brother. What's his older brother? The one, let me remind you, that's outside the party grumbling and angry. The one that won't go in. The one that doesn't even call his brother his brother, but says, your son. What would have happened? Sadly, I don't really think we have to guess. We see this play out all the time. We see it play out all the time in relationships we see it play out all the time in marriages, we see it play out in families, we see it play out in churches. I've seen it over the years, I was doing, this is, these are true stories, I won't give you enough details to, to piece them together, but this has happened multiple times as I'm doing premarital with a couple someone's at our church, someone's in another church. And as we're diving in primarily, we're, we're, we're opening our lives up to one another and we're sharing stuff because we gotta get stuff out there because it's always gonna impact us, right? And so at some point, something comes up that's, that's significant enough to ask, I'll ask this question. I will say something like, how did your church respond to what you just shared with me? How did, or, or how did your pastor respond? And the response is, the first time I heard it, it was shocking and now it's just really Sad oh, I could never tell my church this. Oh, I could never tell my pastor this. Or in a marriage. Some point in the conversation, I'm meeting with one of the spouses or I'm meeting with the other spouse, I'm like, okay, have you, how did your spouse react to when you shared this? Oh, they don't know. Oh, I could never tell them. As you grew up, maybe you felt that with your parents. Oh, I I cannot let them know. My parents cannot know. Or maybe as they got older, oh, I still can't let my parents know. Each one of those very real stories captures something massive. And I would say is, is the big point actually of Luke 15. It's why he told this parable. If you go up to verses one through three, you have this scene of sinners and tax collectors which was just a really notorious group of sinners. And they're drawing near to Jesus. They're coming after him and Jesus is dining with them. That was a way of Middle Eastern hospitality to say, I welcome and accept you. I'm going to share a table with you. And then it says, the the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling at this. And so Jesus went and told them this story. The the, the Pharisees and scribes are like the upper middle class, moral, evangelical, good Christian folk. And they're grumbling that sinners are being welcomed by Christ. Why Jesus told this is that we can, as Christians, preach and sing and declare and celebrate the grace of God and at the same time, deny it by how we behave with one another. The grumbling Pharisees and scribes, they knew their Bibles better than anyone. They memorized huge portions of the Bible. They knew God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and compassion, forgiving iniquity. And if they're angry, that sinners are coming and receiving forgiveness. They're murmuring about Jesus welcoming sinners. Ray Orland captures this dissonance between what we declare in our doctrines and how we behave in our cultures in his book, The Gospel. He says it like this. He says, a church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel in its practice. It's as if a church sings the song, sings the melody, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure while at the time singing the most distorted harmony full of judgment, full of pressure and scare tactics and displeasure and condemnation. Ray Ortland says it also in his book, The Gospel, the tone of a church can unsay what the doctrine of the church says. Now, if that's true, and I would argue it is true, the inverse is true as well. And what's amazing at Redeemer is you are a place where there is a, a continuity between the doctrines of grace that are preached and the way you behave with one another, and I see it all the time, and it is beautiful. And it is Beautiful can bring your mess to the surface. And, and you probably have the person across from me when you say, me too. Or I'm sorry, how can I help? Let's remember what Christ has done. I see it all the time. Now, if it's true that we can unsay, we can say, we can reinforce, we can make the grace we see in this parable so real that you could touch it, perhaps with just a hug one of the reasons if you come to open house at Redeemer and you hear the things we really care about, one of the things you'll hear is like, we really, really care about the culture of this church. Let me ask you a question. What's more powerful? The 10,000 times you tell your kids how good a father God is, or hugging your kid really tight when they don't deserve it. Hugging them so tight. And you, if you've done this, you, you know how this works. Oftentimes there's a resistance. There's, there's a lack of belief that is genuine, and when you do it with no lecture, with no conditions on the embrace, you just hug them until that child melts in your arms and puts their head on your chest. See, we all are, are living sermons with one another. Sometimes I, I was going to say sometimes, I'd say this, a well-timed hug is better than a thousand sermons on the grace of God when someone is desperate and broken and needy and sinning and they put it out there. A few weeks ago, I asked someone, and, that's a, you know, and I say that as someone who preaches for a living, just go hug and go hold and go weep with. A few weeks ago, I asked someone in our church, um, are you more like the older brother or younger brother? And his response, I'm more like a middle brother. Um, I'm happy to go in either way. It just depends on the moment. It's probably true of all of us if we're honest. We rebel and we also judge. We come needy for grace and we really struggle to grant mercy to others. We ask for forgiveness and we struggle to forgive. There's another person in the story that we're meant to identify with. So we identify with the young son in Auburn. We can identify for sure with the elder son. It often goes like in Christianity, if, particularly if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you typically go from like young son to like you have like a, a three days where it's like you're dialed and then, then you become arrogant, right? And you become like the older son and judgmental to all the people that are still the younger brothers wandering in stupidity. Um, if you grew up in a Christian home, sometimes you're, you're probably the older son. And then you hit 20, you go off to college, and you become the young son. And then by God's grace, you come back. But there's another figure in the story we're supposed to identify with, and I think it's the main point of this parable, which is the father. Henry Nouwen expounds on this idea in his incredible book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He says this, he says, though I am both the younger son and the elder son, I am not to remain them, but to become the father. No father or mother ever became father or mother without having been son or daughter, but every son and daughter has to consciously choose to step beyond their childhood and become father and mother for others. It's to be like the father, to flinch compassion like the father. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, explains that in ancient cultures, It was the responsibility of the oldest son to keep the estate and the family together. It's one of the reasons that the older son would get the larger inheritance, is that there was more responsibility upon his shoulders to keep this together. And when Jesus told this parable, the the audience likely would have believed it was the elder son's job to actually go looking for his young brother when he ran off. That he shouldn't have been Home still. He shouldn't have been out in the field working. So that he should have been out looking for his baby brother. And Keller goes on and tells this true story of a U.S. soldier who uh, went missing in action in Vietnam. And when news got back to his his family, and after they had exercised all of the the channels that they had in in, in the military and, and other NGOs, that the, the the big brother he just got on a plane and he flew to Vietnam. And he just began. <laughs> going around. He just went through the jungles. He went through the cities. He went into to territory that was U.S. He went to territory that was not U.S. I mean, he's in the middle of a war with bombs and bullets flying everywhere. But, but, but people began to find out what he was doing, and nobody attacked him on either side. They actually started just calling him the brother. Who's that? That's the brother. And to quote Kelly, he says, This is what the elder brother in the parable should have done. This is what the true elder brother would have done. He would have said, Father, my younger brother has been a fool. And now his life is in ruins, but I will go look for him and bring him home. See, having a gospel culture doesn't mean you're soft on sin, it, it, it means we're big on grace. Oh, he's been a fool. Oh, what he's doing is hurting him, it's hurting you, it's hurting me, it's hurting everyone and I'm still going to go get them because we need them home. You can hold those things together. Fool, and I still want them home. This is how we go from how deep the Father's love is for us. How about this one? How deep the, the Father's love is through us And to quote Henry Nowen, do I want to be like the father? Do I want to not just, do I want to be not just the one who is being forgiven, but also the one who forgives, not just the one who is being welcomed home, but also the one who welcomes home, not just the one who receives compassion, but the one who offers it as well. And again, Redeemer, you do splendidly at this. And I know it's gut-wrenching. That word moved with compassion can mean your guts churn. Oh, it's hard to love like this. Let's be honest. I've been reading a short book by B.B. Warfield called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in this book, Warfield goes through different emotions that Jesus expressed, anger and joy and sorrow. And the biggest insight that I've pulled away from this, he says, the number one dominant emotion that Jesus expressed was this, compassion. He was constantly moved with compassion. When he saw someone with a physical infirmity, he's moved with compassion. When he saw the hardness of the religious elite's hearts, he was moved with compassion. When he saw people choosing sin and and not human flourishing, he was moved with compassion. It didn't matter what the sorrow or the sickness was, he was moved with compassion. He couldn't look at brokenness. He he couldn't look at brokenness, even self-inflicted brokenness, and not be moved with compassion. Last time I'll quote Henry now, and perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is this, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. God's compassion is described by Jesus, not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive me my sins and offer me new life and happiness, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing to me. saw a real world example of this type of compassion a few years ago in a Texas courtroom in fall of 2019. Amber Geiger uh, had been convicted of the murder of 26 year old accountant Botham Jean. Amber had entered uh, what she thought was her apartment but was not her apartment and was was in his own apartment and she pulled out a gun and she shot him. He was taken to the hospital but he died quickly. And in that courtroom, after the verdict came in guilty and the sentence was given, which many cried out and were very frustrated about the sentence was given, felt like it was too small for the crime, the family members were able to make, I believe it's called an uh, an impact statement. And uh, Botham's 18-year-old brother, Brant Jean, as he sat next to the judge, and I've watched watched this clip multiple times over the years, um, it was pretty unreal. She was guilty. She had been found guilty. She had taken his brother's life. Rage would have been so understandable. Anger would have been so understandable. But he looks forward and through a series of statements, he just looks at her and says, I forgive you. And then he did this thing that was really unusual. He looked at the judge and said, I don't know if this is allowed or not, but can I go over and give her a hug? So he gets up from behind the, the bench and he walks over and he hugs her. I think he hugged her for over a minute. She's just crying and crying and crying. Now, she is in prison, justice to some extent, and forgiven. That embrace is a reflection of the sort of compassion in this story with someone who has done something so atrocious that you dig deep into the well of the Father's love that you might be able to embrace. Uh, I mean, none of us ever have to dig that deep to love that much, but if you want to to. If you want to be able to flinch compassion, if you want to build on this, and what I already said in this church, I think is so true how you love one another. Oh, goodness. If you want to be like the Father, the question is how? Just go back to the story and see yourself in the story again and again and again. See the Father love you again and again and again and again and again. See him Looking and running and feeling and embracing and kissing again and again and again and again. As you fail to forgive your kids, as you fail to forgive your spouse, as you, as you, as you flinch uh, uh, condemnation, as you flex judgment towards others, go back to this text and see the father come out to the older son and entreat him and invite him and, and absorb his poison again and again and again. with him. The calf is always the fatted calf. The robe is always the best robe. The joy is unspeakable. The peace passes understanding. There is no grudging in God's goodness. It's most incredibly seen in the gospel. You go, let this story springboard you towards the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came to this earth to seek and save sinners. He came to heal the sick and he gave of himself that he took the poison, that he took the curse, that he took the punishment, that he took the cross, that he took the wrath of God that we might be welcomed back in, not as people that have to pay him back but just embraced his son or daughter when he says, my treasure. You just go again and again and again. I have never in my life been able to hold a grudge against my wife while remembering the greater debt that God has paid for me. Not simultaneously. I'll flip-flop real quick though. You just go back again and again and again. Wherever you struggle to be gracious with others, if you struggle to feel compassion towards others, the solution is not try harder or feel worse. Just go to the grace of God again and again. How deep the Father's love for us. Then, how deep the Father's love through us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's a profound It is as profound and simple as this, our love for you and others, it's always a response to your great love for us. We love you because you first loved us by giving yourself for us on the cross. Because of your death we live, because your death was a sin-bearing death. All our sins are forgiven. We now live in a perpetual state of full forgiveness. The gift covering of your righteousness and the Father's unwavering affection. The unloving, the dark, the selfish things we have thought and still think, the harmful, death-giving, uncaring words we spoke and still speak, the choices we make and the things we do which reveal the imperfection of our obedience, it's all forgiven. Not what we or you want, but it's all forgiven. We are and should be and want to be astonished and grateful and humble. Father, might you intensify our love for Jesus and for others over and over and over again. Jesus, show us how deeply we are loved by you and how lavishly we are loved by the Father. May the Spirit press the truths of the gospel so deeply into our souls that we would never doubt we have a Father that we can always return home to. And in that home of grace, Teach us to love others in the way in which we are loved. In Jesus' name, amen.